We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. So there's not much going on. It's sort of the middle of summer. And, you know, we're, we're just seeing a, a, an awful lot about the horrific forest fires that are going on through parts of the Northwest Territories and B.C. and such. And, uh, man, it's, it's obviously you have to feel for people. Kelowna, beautiful city, spent time there when I was living in Calgary. And, um, and, and, you know, to see what's going on there, it's, it, it's frightening. And while all this is going on, um, the, uh, prime minister's wife is, is sending pictures of her sitting in seaweed, uh, in, in Turfino in British Columbia, which is where the family's, uh, uh, vacationing, which many people are just shaking their heads and like, can you not smell the smoke from there? Can you not, is it not coming over the mountains there? You can't, can't, uh, smell it by the beach. So anyway, uh, it, it just seems like a very inappropriate, uh, picture of someone who is an elite and, and very wealthy sitting in a tub of seaweed at some spa. And, um, you know, the rest of people in BC are wondering whether the home's going to burn down or not. So very odd timing for that. And what makes it even more odd is I'm not sure if you remember this or not. I was on vacation and everybody decided they weren't going to talk about this. So nobody did, including me, until today, because it will come up because of the picture of the prime minister's wife sitting in a spa tub of seaweed in British Columbia while the rest of the province burns. It's just bizarre. And when the announcement came out that the two were separating, this is the first words I've said about this, because we're respecting their privacy. But when you're taking pictures and putting them up on social media and then telling us to respect your privacy, you're kind of sucking and blowing at the same time. And it started with the prime minister and his team Barbie pictures going to the movies. Nobody, you're more than welcome to go to the movies with the family. But you're begging people for privacy, and you're posting on social media what you're doing. And a second time, with the prime minister's wife sitting in a tub of seaweed at some spa that you or I probably couldn't afford to go to. No, couldn't afford to go to. So, uh... Uh, we appreciate the privacy concerns. No, uh, nobody wants to hear about a, 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 a messy separation or divorce. That's just terrible. Lots of families have been through it. Nobody, nobody wishes that on anyone. But to sit and demand privacy, request privacy, which people give you, and then post pictures of your family vacation on social media? No, you're the prime minister and the prime minister's wife. Whatever. Not to mention that a lot of the West is burning. So it just it just seems bizarre. Like what planet are these people on? 
like, you know, you're going to get chatter about the prime minister's wife sitting in a tub of seaweed in British Columbia at some elite spa anyway. But to particularly do it now? So the prime minister is going to run off to a press conference to talk about the wildfires. Honey, you just sit there in the seaweed tub. Really? Who says these people represent them? Because I don't know anyone like them. No one. Except, I don't know, maybe uh, Hollywood or, or the Royals. I don't know. But it just, it just, it amazes me of how out of touch. That's like, that's like surfing in Turfino on the very first Truth and Reconciliation Day. From surfing to seaweed tubs. Man. Hooey. I don't know how you, I don't know how you balance that, kids. Um, all right. All right, let's bring in Randall Denley. The surprising truth about Ford's plan to develop a minuscule portion of the Greenbelt. The Greenbelt plan is a unique uh, attempt to turbocharge development. If developers can't get projects started within two years, their land will revert to Greenbelt protection. And to talk more about all of this is Randall Denley, author and columnist for the Ottawa Citizen and National Post and here now. Randall, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Thanks. Before we get to time limits here, and this is a great idea, and, and, and well, anyway, um, I remember talking to pundits earlier this week and said that this is now the hottest political issue. I expanded on that and said it will be the hottest political issue for the next five to ten years because there is no quick, easy way out of this. Would you agree? You're talking about housing, yes, absolutely. Yeah. We dug ourselves in an enormous hole. And there isn't any easy fix, and a lot of the things that will need to be done are unpopular. And top of that list would be this plan to develop 0.3% of the green belt, which you would think would, from the reaction, they must be bulldozing the whole thing. And, you know, it's interesting that uh, we hear now, after the nibbling of the green belt, we hear... And I remember talking to experts about this for the last couple of years. There's 20 to 40 years worth of develop uh, developable land before we get to the green belt. But nobody ever talks about that. And yet we still have a housing shortage because there's nothing on it. And nobody's moving towards towards actually uh, correcting that. It doesn't seem unless we're going to nibble into the green belt that that even comes up. And now it has finally become part of the discussion. Yeah, and I, I think this. Uh... This project is an interesting one, and, and people have lost uh, their sense of the nature of what it's all about. I would say the government hasn't explained it terribly well. But what makes this different than all the rest of that land that people are pointing to and say, well, what about all this? You know, here's a picture of a, an aerial shot of a parking lot. Why don't they just put houses there? Well, all that stuff is going to happen. But, you know, as you know, there's a problem right now with house building because interest rates are so high. It makes it very difficult, not just for buyers, but for builders uh, to go ahead. So um, in this case, the provincial government has given the landowners on these 15 different parcels of land a significant incentive. You know, their land as greenbelt land isn't worth a great deal. As development land is obviously worth a lot more, but they have to get started on building within two years, which is like light speed by Ontario construction industry standards or reverse the greenbelt. 
So they're heavily incentivized to get going and build houses now. And the province's intention as well is to use one of its uh, uh, development agencies to work with the developers and say, look, we don't want this, you know, the normal kind of development charges that pay for the basics. We want you developers to pay for a lot more. Maybe you're going to pay for a community center or you're going to subsidize affordable housing. You're going to pay for the whole cost of pipe services, new roads. They're putting a lot of cost on these people. But, you know, these are developers who are apparently willing to come forth and do it and say, you know, it makes sense for us to do this and we can do it. We can do it now. And if, you, if you've followed uh, Steve Clark, the housing minister, over the last a couple of years in particular, he is a bit of a bulldozer. He's determined to get housing built, and he doesn't get stopped by the, but oh, we don't do it that way here yeah. kind of thing. You could see that when he came in and you know, we changed the official plan in Ottawa. We changed it in Hamilton and some other places as well, because the government is trying to produce or prove a lot more land for development. The opposing view, the one held by the the people who are mortified by any greenbelt development, is that well, there should only be enough land approved so that we have exactly enough to meet what we think will be the demand. We don't really know what the demand is, but when you take that approach, as, as Ontario was taken for a very long time, mm. what you do is create a scarcity of land, you drive up the price. So the more land that's in play, the better the price of the house could be. And how can you really sit there and say you don't know really how much it's going to grow? My goodness, listen to the immigration numbers. I mean, Canada is an exploding country on several different fronts. I mean, to say that it's going to shrink is just bizarre. Um, yeah, why don't we use this? Going to grow exactly. No, yeah, going to grow it, it is going to grow absolutely. So why not the same sort of plan for those white quote white belt lands that are sitting on the edges of boundaries that aren't being developed that are the twenty to forty that everybody says where we should be developing? Why not the same sort of plan there to speed them up? I think everything's going to get developed. Uh, most of it's under municipal control to get it moving, and and the government's changed the rules for development so that if you don't get a quick approval, and then you start to get the, the municipality gets penalized. So if anybody has a plan for development now, they're going to be able to move it forward quickly. But part of the, the faulty analysis here, I think, is to say, well, you know, they said we need 1.5 million homes. And look, we've canvassed the entire province, and there's there's room somewhere for them. We don't necessarily need them in Timmins. We need them where people want to live, and that's part of the value of this Greenbelt plan. Part of it's in Hamilton. It's in a couple of the other regions that abut Toronto. So this is close-in development. If you're an actual environmentalist, you should say, right, if we can be more compact, more close to the center, that's the way to go. But because we have the green belt. We haven't done that. Then a lot of development gets pushed out to areas beyond the green belt. Yeah. You know, yeah. People, it makes sense now, apparently, for people to say, oh, I live in Waterloo, but I drive to Toronto every day. And for years, of course, you know, people have commuted from Barrie every day, which is not super close to Toronto, but, you know, it's where you can get a house, I guess. So this is what green belts give you. And nobody knows that better than somebody from Ottawa, because we've had one in place here since the 1950s. Hmm. Developers said, oh, yeah, okay, fine. We'll just build on the other side of it. Whole cities have grown up on the other side of Ottawa's Greenbelt. So and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, sorry, go ahead. Finish your thought, yeah. Randall. I was just going to say, it's a way to stop growth. Greenbelts are terrifically ineffective. 
You know, it's fascinating because we think this is an all or nothing now. As I said to you earlier, this is a hot issue that's going to continue to be so for at least a decade. You know, when that 20 to 40 years worth of land is used up, then what is the discussion? We've got to sit down now and talk about what is the future of the Greenbelt as we do continue to grow. Because the way we looked at it 20 years ago, we're not going to look at it the same way now or even 20 years from now. Yeah, in fairness to the people who created it. 20 years ago, they wouldn't have anticipated then mm-hmm. the pace of immigration that we have under the current federal government, which is you know double what it was uh, when Trudeau took power. So nobody was really planning for 500,000 people a year to be coming to Ontario. So what do we do about that? I mean, the, the obvious answer is you take your immigration down to something that's actually manageable in the economy, but Nobody wants to do that politically. So Ontario is stuck with the problem of saying, well, what the heck are we going to do for housing? You know, the new people coming in need housing. We have students coming in, they need housing. Temporary workers, they need housing. And even the provincial government's plan, one and a half million homes over 10 years, it presupposes that somehow the construction industry in Ontario can produce 50% more per year than it's ever done. I think that's highly unlikely. So I think when it comes to housing, we should take whatever we can get because there's no way we're going to meet the demand. And the other thing that people forget is that Ontario is already in the hole right now. I and mean, we're clearly short of housing. But just to get to the national average in Canada, Ontario would need 600,000 more houses right now yeah. today. Wow. All right. Randall Denley with us. The surprising truth about Ford's plan to develop a minuscule portion of the Greenbelt. You can find it in the National Post. He is a columnist there and for the Ottawa Citizen. Randall, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. We certainly know uh, the situation with the high cost of uh, everything, affordability, housing, mortgages, interest rates. Many Canadians with mortgages are seeing their amortization period stretch in a way we haven't seen for, uh, we haven't seen before, and specifically on infinity mortgage. What is that? And how's, what's the impact of home buyers and on the economy itself? Let's bring in Randy Robinson, political economist and the Ontario director for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and is with us now. Randy, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am very well. Thanks for having me, Scott. So how has the current situation, uh, post-pandemic affordability, interest rates and such, how has that changed the products that we see now and the options available to us? Well, one of the things that happened at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we're looking at three years ago now that Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada, said that interest rates were going to be low for a very long time. Now, we don't know what he meant by a very long time, but apparently that time is up now. Um, uh, During the pandemic, early days of the pandemic, interest rates were at rock bottom lows. So a lot of people said, listen, I'm going to pay down my balance very fast, my principal on my mortgage very quickly uh, by taking out a variable rate mortgage. And uh, those variable rates were very low and the payments were, as a consequence, eating away at the principal quite nicely. Uh, but uh, that's not the case anymore. So now we have the situation where people are paying on their mortgages, but they're not paying off their mortgages. So they're paying nothing but interest in many cases uh, on their uh, on their mortgages and and the principal is just not going down. 
And how does that affect them at the end of this journey? <laughs> well, if I'm not sure what you mean by the end of the journey, but I think I know what you mean. Uh, the um, It's not like they will never pay off their mortgage. It's just that if things don't change, they will never pay off their mortgage. Hmm. So one of the reasons people buy houses is that at, uh, you know, you want to get to the point where let's say you're in your sixties, you've actually paid off your house and then your, um, your non-payment of your mortgage becomes part of your income sort of in retirement. Um, if the current situation persists, uh, a lot of people are going to find that they're having to work longer to pay off their house, and it's not impossible that they simply never will, and they'll keep paying till the day they die. So uh, when did this become acceptable? I mean, I, I, I don't think I've heard of an infinity, and I, I guess by saying an infinity mortgage is interest only. Is that accurate? Uh, well, it, it, another way to talk about it is to say that people have reached their trigger rate. Your trigger right. rate is the rate... Um, is the moment when you are paying only interest and not paying principal at all. So right now, if I uh, were paying only interest and not principal at all, my bank or credit union really couldn't predict when I would be paying it off because at, under current conditions, I'm I'm not paying it off at all. Right. Now, assuming that interest rates go down and the won't be in the short term, probably, but in the medium term, well, then people might get back to the point where they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. But right now, it's just uh, darkness. Uh, you said uh, if things get better or when things get better, uh, th this is sort of a temporary measure to get people through difficult times. Are you concerned this does become the norm? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I think... I mean, we're we're looking at a real shakeup of of Canadian housing right now. The banks and credit unions are not wanting people to default, and the strategy that they've come up with is just to say, "Well, you just keep on paying, and uh, you know we'll let you know when to stop." Uh, but um, as far as this being a permanent situation, it might actually be a lesson to people that you can't. Uh, trust that interest rates will stay low forever. You know, after the Great Recession of 2008, 2009 was when the era of really low interest rates began. And um, I'm not surprised that people got the feeling that this was the new normal. Uh, but along with that new normal went much higher housing prices. So as a consequence, when you get in the situation you're in right now, where interest rates have shot up, it's not just that you're paying higher interest, it's that you're paying it on a much, much bigger uh, debt that you borrowed to start with. So um, I think a lot of people are going to say, well, I'm not going to let that happen to me again. And so it, it might be a little bit of a lesson that you can't trust that rates will stay low forever. That's not very much comfort to people who are trying to deal with the problem right now, though. I remember uh, working with guys on a financial show 20 years ago when these interest rates went down, and it was temporary for at least five, 10 years. I don't think it was till the 10-year mark that everybody was finally saying, okay, this could be the new normal. And then, wow, look where we are, um, you know, just a few years, uh, 10 years after that. Uh, is this a good solution? Is this a way to ride it out? What are your concerns? Uh, well, it, it's the only way to ride it out for people who want to hold on to their house. They have to uh, keep making their payments uh, because if you default, then obviously uh, you know the banks takes the banks take measures to uh, 
to take your house away in time. Uh, it's the only option available is, is just to ride this out and uh, hope. Now, on the from the bank perspective, this is not a terrible situation because it actually increases the amount of uh, interest that you pay and the amount of profit that they make over the long term of your mortgage. So it, I guess it depends which side of the fence you're sitting on. So advice, tips to those that are uh, wading into these waters? Well, I'm not a mortgage broker, and I'm the last person that you would want to take advice from when it comes to a financial <laughs> matter. But uh, one of the things that people have been doing, um, if you just look at the data, which is what I like to do because it's a lot more reliable than my opinion. Um, if you look at the data, a lot of people are going into that one to three year fixed rate mortgage area if they can. The number of people with a variable rate mortgage is going down every month. And that's as people are bailing out of the variable rate mortgages, which are now very high interest rate. And when they have the opportunity to do so because their mortgage term is up, they are moving into that one to three year period. And I think the reason for that is fairly obvious, which is you don't want to be in a situation where the rate goes up some more. So you do fix you, lock yourself in for a bit. On the other hand, you don't want to lock yourself in at that very high rate that you've got right now for a long time. So people are playing this guessing game. And, and it, you know, if you uh, if you follow uh, uh, any mortgage brokers, they will be honest and tell you that it is a bit of a guessing game because, uh, you know, we can't read the mind of the Bank of Canada. And with a housing shortage, this doesn't seem to be getting any easier anytime soon because there'll always be a high demand. Well, there is very high demand for housing. And, uh, you know, there there are so many uh, causes to the problems that we're having in housing right now. There are a lot of houses that are being treated as investments and, uh, you know, people are are uh, renting out uh, homes and apartments that they buy at really high rates. So the rental market is part of this conversation too. But um, there, we've got a situation where we're actually building less housing now than we were uh, just a few months ago. Uh, Ontario housing is slowing down because those interest rates are higher and mm. the financing costs are higher. So it's not a good moment. Randy Robinson with us, political economist and the Ontario director for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, talking about infinity mortgages. Randy, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime. Thank you. Bye-bye. You might remember that uh, when Russia invaded uh, the Ukraine, <laughs> how long ago has it been now? It's supposed to be three days, four-day operation. It's still continuing as uh, allies continue to uh, aid Ukraine in giving all kinds of of, uh, of military uh, hardware and such to to help them defend themselves. You might remember that uh, not a NATO country, therefore, um, uh, sending jets or U.S. fighter jets into into Russia, uh, of course, would have uh, signaled World War Three. Where do you draw the line in actually sending the jets or training pilots and sending other F-16 fighter jets? The United States has approved sending F-16s to. Uh, the Ukraine from Denmark and the Netherlands to defend against Russian invaders uh, as soon as uh, pilot training is complete. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Jack Cunningham is with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School, uh, University of Toronto with us now. Jack, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. So, again, we remember way back when, uh, Ukraine, not a NATO country. You can't just go in there. It will start World War III. How is this different? 
Well, it's different because these F-16s are not going to be flown by NATO pilots. They're going to be flown mm -hmm. by Ukrainian pilots. Right. Now, at one point, uh, President Biden used that this might constitute an escalation and that it could certainly worsen relations with Russia. I think he's probably concluded that relations with Russia are unlikely to get any worse. And he's almost certainly noticed that uh, Putin's actual behavior, as distinct from some of his rhetoric, has been comparatively prudent. He's, uh, In some ways, he may be crazy, but he's not crazy when it comes to matters pertaining to his own survival or the survival of his country. What about uh, Russia or Putin's view of all of this? Is it the same thing to him? Well, it may very well be the same thing to him. He's uh, <laughs> he's drawn the line before, and he's ignored it at uh, at various uh, steps that uh, the NATO allies have taken to aid Ukraine. Is this the same as sending in tanks or guns or ammo or or, or what have you? I mean, missiles. Um, is this uh, is how does this change the the dialogue? How does this change the discussion? Well, it's not politically that much different from sending in other kinds of weapons. And militarily, it's unlikely to make a great deal of difference in the short run. It takes about six months to, to train a pilot to fly an F-16. And uh, so as a result, we're unlikely to see Ukrainians flying F-16s this year, uh, maybe, uh, maybe early next year, maybe the middle of next year. And, uh, and even then... Uh, while the F-16 is uh, several generations ahead of the planes the Ukrainians already have, it's not necessarily going to prove decisive. It's certainly not going to prove decisive in terms of the current counteroffensive. So even uh, when fully trained up by next year and such, does this make much of a difference? Well, it does enable the Ukrainians to, uh, to fight on more equal terms with the Russians in terms of air superiority. The F-16 is uh, is a very versatile fighter. It's uh, it's 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 better able than what the Ukrainians now have to uh, to contend with uh, Russian fighters and their uh, their air to air uh, uh, missiles. But it's uh, it's unlikely to prove decisive against the very heavily built up Russian air defenses. And of course, the uh, the further you go behind the uh, the Russian lines, the the more you have to contend with their air defenses. So what uh, what would be their roles here? What will they be used for? Uh they will be used for uh supporting the uh the infantry supporting ground operations and they do make some of the kinds of operations the Ukrainians are already engaged in a little easier and a little more effective. I mean the NATO countries have supplied Ukraine with a lot of missiles including missiles capable of taking out Russian radar. And because the Ukrainians are now are are now flying uh, Soviet era uh, planes, these planes are not uh, were not designed as platforms for these new model weapon systems. The F-16s were, so you don't have to go through the cumbersome process of adapting these missiles to fit uh, the planes that the Ukrainians are flying, and that uh, and that saves time and effort. Where are we with this situation, Jack? Give us a bit of an update. At the moment, we're uh, we're bogged down in stalemate, and we're likely to continue to uh, to be so for quite some time. Now, the Ukrainians are making uh, some progress with the current counteroffensive, but it's gradual. It is a war of attrition. 
it's a war with high casualties on uh, probably on both sides, certainly on the Russian side. But uh, the uh, the end of the conflict is uh, is nowhere in sight. What about life in Ru- What about life in Russia? Are they still buying in? Uh, I think they're increasingly cynical. But uh, then again, they have to contend with uh, a media that a media that are uh, controlled by the Kremlin, licensed by the Kremlin, that can be readily punished if they step out of line. So the drumbeat of the incessant propaganda may uh, may keep them at least uh, at least out of out out of uh, open dis- dissent. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. A sure sign we are into the dog days of summer. The Canadian National Exhibition is lighting up again for another season and uh, starts today, runs right through Labor Day weekend. Daryl Brown is with us, Canadian National Exhibition CEO, and here now. Daryl, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, keeping well. How has opening? I bet you're you're a busy guy. Uh, what's it? What's the first day been like for you? Uh, it's great. You know, there's lots of people out. You know, it'd be nice if it was a bit sunnier and warmer, but uh, it doesn't seem to be dampening the enthusiasm. That food building is packed. And what edition of it is it this year? Well, this is our 144th year. Now, that's not the 144th fair because we were shut down during the war and. Right. And uh, yeah, the first, the Second World War, rather, and uh, and also during COVID, but uh, pretty close to it. Talk about some of those early days. Initially started as an agricultural fair and sort of an industrial fair in the sense that all the latest gizmos you could see. It's evolved since then. Yeah, well, you know, innovation was really right there from the start. And uh, you know, when you look at some of the uh, the archives, uh, you know, demonstrating things even like torpedoes in eighteen ninety four as as new military gadgets and the light bulb and uh, mm. and of course television when that came out. And so it, it's always had this reputation as being the showcase of the, the nation. And we try and continue to focus on innovation as one of the things we do. It was very cool looking at your website and seeing some of the old shots uh, from the air with the flyer and that sort of thing. It's amazing. Uh, there's so many memories for uh, so many people in southern Ontario that uh, go with this fair every single year. All right. Uh, you talked about the food, so let's start with that because it seems to be the most bizarre thing every year. Uh, and the food building is always jammed. What are some of the weird and wild that uh, you're seeing today? And have you tasted any of these, Daryl? Or do you, do you look and... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, um, when we have Media Day, of course, we had 115 registered media people in on, on Media Day, and, and, and one of the main focuses of Media Day is the food. So I end up tasting a lot because uh, people come around and they want to do interviews and also do the taste testing at the same time. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, I was I was doing an interview earlier today in the food building, and, and I couldn't believe the lineup for the four-pound taco. I mean... Wow, I I, I I mean it was interesting. I thought as a gimmick uh, for media day, and you know we, were, I you know I was taking a bite of one side, journalists were taking bites of the other side, but <sighs> people are lining up for it. I mean I don't know where you put four pounds of taco, but but 
it's there. <laughs> um, you know, there's all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff. Pickles seem to dominate the theme again this year. Um, you know, pickle cotton candy is one of the, uh. the people have tried. Don't know that. What's your appetite? So uh, why do you think food plays such a big role in this fair? And it has been for the year, through the years. I mean, the food building is obviously one of the prime destinations of this fair. Well, you know, when we survey attendees about, you know, the, the main place they go to at the fair, it's you know, 78% of the people say it's the food building. So, yeah, it, it, it's uh, like a magnet. Um, I think, you know, it's just, um, it's a lot of fun uh, to see what kind of quirky things, you know, we have 107 vendors just in the food building and they all submit proposals during the year as to what new thing they can come up with. So whether it's a rosé macaroni and cheese with a little caviar on top, which is one of the things that's there this year, (laughs) um, or a... Um, a butter chicken overload, which is, it's like a sandwich with samosas on the top and bottom that are filled with butter chicken, plus a tandoori chicken uh, soaked in a butter chicken sauce, plus fries, again, in between the samosas, soaked in butter chicken sauce. So, you know, um, <laughs> you can get into some uh, heavy butter chicken, but people seem to love it. So and then let and then let's let you know. Then let's run to the midway and see if we can spin it all around a few times. My well, goodness, that's right? You got to work. <laughs> yeah. Spin it up. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know. So so well for some people. so give us some of the highlights, some of the things, uh, the must sees at this year's event. Well, we've got the Pink Floyd exhibition here, um, which is uh, it, it's a bit unusual. And that all you know, usually everything once you pay admission. Everything you can go to is free. That's always been our byline, but it costs $6 million to put together the Pink Floyd exhibition. Um, it, it, it premiered at, um, in London in 2017, uh, and uh, it, um, it's phenomenal. Uh, it's, you know, that, that, that band touched on seven decades, and this just takes you from the early days, even before the band was formed in 1962, right, uh, to the present and uh, three, over 350 artifacts. And, and to, to align with that at the band shell on September 2nd, we've got classic albums live doing the note by note Dark Side of the Moon album. Mm, great. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's going to be a great night. Uh, you know, that album was on the Billboard charts for almost 18 years. Um, no other album even comes close to half of that time, and that, that record will never be broken. So, so that's, that's, that's a, a phenomenon in and of itself to take in. Uh, but, you know, lots of interesting stuff on the band shell. I mean, there's some there's some great variety because we've got, uh, you know, the 50th anniversary of hip hop. So we have a hip hop night. Um, we've got a legend in, in Dionne Warwick coming in this weekend. Uh, but then William Prince, who's really on the upsurge on the countryside. Um, is, so, you know, you can find uh, uh, Amanda Marshall after a 14 year hiatus mm. coming back out. So. Uh, from soca, reggae, hip hop, uh, you know, we even have Bollywood in there this year. So, so it's um, it's something for everybody. An air show finishing it off Labor Day weekend. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got the Blue Angels coming in from the U.S. Navy, and of course the Snowbirds and uh, Yak and uh, a bunch of other. Uh, the, the air show is going to be quality this year. 
Uh, and we've got a water show that's pretty interesting as well, especially in the night when the lasers are on. It shoots, uh, it, it's 11, um, 11 fountains that go to music and shoot streams up to 100 feet high. Um, it's, uh, I was looking at it last night and in, uh, on a day like today, when the wind's coming in, you better get on the, the high side <laughs> of the bleachers <laughs> you better, or you have a better have a change of clothes. But, uh, um, all right. The C and E has officially started and running right through to Labor Day weekend. Daryl Brown with a CEO of the Canadian national exhibition, bigger and better than ever. Good luck this year, Daryl. Hey, thanks. Hope to see you here. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, we have certainly seen over the last several months um, uh, the popularity and the polls reflect that uh, the prime minister is losing his um, his shiny happy people face. The sunny ways becoming cloudy and uh he's slipping in the polls uh, the conservatives are ahead of them and it just seems to be one mistake after another whether it's well we'll get into this later um now as a result of these uh sort of diminishing uh polls and such and and there's grumblings within the ranks that uh some are growing frustrated a liberal mp is growing frustrated with uh this current government let's bring in wayne petrosi professor emeritus politics and public administration toronto metropolitan University and here now. Wayne, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. Well, Wayne, wouldn't a cabinet shuffle have uh, solved this issue? You know, not in, 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 in one sense, it may very well when we see a speech from the throne, see what kinds of initiatives, but there's a, a, a deeper problem that has to do with they've been in office eight years. They are perhaps all too familiar to many Canadian voters. And they've, you know, you reach a point in the life of a government where the energy is, the batteries are low, you're kind of fresh out of new ideas. Uh, It's a tough slog, even when you are doing well in politics. And so you begin to have folks in your ranks who begin to think about doing other things, who decide they've given what they can. So I think there's a sense of malaise you know, correctly reported in, 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 in news outlets within the party among its elected members. And so I wouldn't be surprised if next you'll begin to hear about uh, members announcing their intentions, you know, uh, not to run in the next cycle. So, and again, I think we saw that with um, with the cabinet shuffle, because obviously, if you weren't going to run in the next uh, election, you didn't get into the cabinet. Are they, have they had enough are, are, are they tired or is that they want change? They want new leadership. Oh, I, I suspect it, 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 there are a variety of factors at play. In some cases, it's aspirations that haven't been realized. I think in other cases, it is just fatigue. You wear out. It, it's very hard, I, I, I think anyway, to spend your time going out, interacting with the public, always upbeat, always trying to be positive, notwithstanding whatever is thrown your way in the way of criticism and comments. It it, it does wear you down uh, because you're always you always have to be on. Uh, and um, that's not so easy. 
Um, I can completely understand exactly what you're saying, uh, Wayne, but the, the report specifically says that the MPs are growing frustrated uh, with the government, not necessarily tired and want to move on, but they're getting frustrated, which would lend you to believe, lead you to believe that they're not happy with the direction that they're going or the leadership. Have you heard any of that? Do you think that's the case? Uh, is it time uh, not only to replace some of the MPs or, or what have you, is it time to replace the leader? No, I don't suspect the problem is with leadership. If anything, in fact, those who remain optimistic with the party, I think remain so because they believe their leader, Mr. Trudeau, uh, will out-campaign the leader that the Conservatives have put forward. And, you know, they took a risk. They They elected as leader of their party what I would call a test tube politician. Uh, This is a fellow who has, I think the only job he's held in the private sector was a newspaper boy. Otherwise, he's been working in the party as a volunteer, as a staffer, then elected. Uh, It's it's going to be quite the interesting contest when he tries to stand up to and deal with comments that He's been cocooned for his entire adult life. And what does he know about what Canadians feel or miss or are anxious about? Is that Pierre Pauly- election are, campaign? Are you are you you're referring to Pierre Polyevra? Yeah. Some may say the same about the prime minister. Private life and he did have a career teaching and he did do other things. Mr. He Bonnet, also, he also, he also, Wayne, Wayne, he also grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth and is a second generation prime minister. And his wife's right now sitting in a tub of seaweed in BC while the rest of the province is on fire. So well, many may, many may say the if, same if thing. We, many you, may say, hang on a sec, Wayne. Many may sure. say the same thing about the prime minister as what you're saying about the leader of the opposition. Well, except this. Uh, if Canadians were concerned that leaders should come from backgrounds of wealth, uh, and I think you'd have a hard time explaining most of the leaders we've had in the in the 20th century. I don't think it is any. I don't think it has. I don't think. I don't think there's an element of classism within our society, and but and and political parties aren't aren't immune to it either. Uh, and uh, so you know whether you're talking about Paul Martin, whether you're talking about Brian Mulroney. Uh, I, I don't think uh, this Louis is. Saint we've we've gone off. Wayne, 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 we, Wayne. We've gone off. Wayne, we've gone off on a on a tangent here that really isn't uh, relevant. Uh, it, uh-huh. It's not. We're not debating whether people have to be rich or not rich to succeed in politics. It's if the leader is identifying with the electorate. Many look at this prime minister as being very divisive, and 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 and, and not necessarily unifying. Many point to the leader of the opposition as setting the tone for the country, when in fact it's the prime minister who sets the tone for the country. There's no question there's a lot of antipathy in the country towards, I would suggest, more generally to politicians. Uh, politicians are too often seen as self-serving, and that includes uh, the, the Liberal Prime Minister. I, 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 I don't know that I would exclude anybody from, if you like, being innocent of that kind of characterization being thrown their way. There is a, an element of discontent, which is why I, st- I suggested at the outset, the government's long in the tooth. By most accounts, they should be easy pickings 18 months from now. They should be easy yeah. pickings. Yeah. Now, whether they are or not, I think, 
for those liberals who remain uh, engaged and and in and invested in the party and the government, they are counting on Mr. Trudeau's election skills, campaign skills. Right. Now, whether they're right or wrong, where of course we will always we'll find out. But that's what I think they're counting on. Because that, that malaise, that sense of fatigue is is pretty hard to, to shake off. Wayne Petrosi, Professor Emeritus, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University. As we speak, negotiations continuing and hoping that uh, uh, a strike can be averted. What should Hamiltonians be prepared if there is a service interruption due to striking city workers next week? Let's talk to uh, Jeanette Smith, City Manager for the City of Hamilton, and with us now. Jeanette, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm right here, and I am well. Thanks, Scott. Jeanette, I know there's certain stuff you can talk about and you can't talk about because obviously negotiations are going on. Can you give us any sort of update of where we are or what is happening over the course of the weekend and Monday? Um, Well, as I think you can appreciate, Scott, we can't provide details on the negotiations that are happening right now. But I can confirm that the negotiating teams are continuing to meet and keeping those lines of communication open with a, a goal of getting an agreement. And what happens if nothing happens over the weekend come Monday? Yeah, so um, what will happen is if we get notice that we are uh, going to be in a strike situation, could be as early as Monday morning, uh, we'll make sure as a city, as soon as we know something, uh, we will get information out through all our channels, social media, website, and we'll really rely on media partners as well to get that message out. Um, so that people know one way or another what's happening on Monday morning. So um, I'm asking you a question I'm sure you can't answer. So is there any chance you could find out Sunday night or or earlier than that? Um, I guess it depends on how this all goes. Yeah. Yeah. What I can commit is uh, when we um, know something either way that uh, there is a potential, like we're into a strike situation as early as Monday morning, or it's not going to be a strike situation Monday morning, we'll make sure we get the messages out. So what and who will be affected by this if, in fact, it does go through? What changes Monday? Yeah, so a number of things change Monday. First, I just want to reiterate that things like transit, emergency services like paramedics and fire, those are not impacted because I know those are critical services for our community. Um, But a number of our services will be impacted. Um, Things like, um, you know, our museums, our municipal service centers, um, like the tropical greenhouse, all those different things will be closed. Um, We will have, you know, much less reduced uh, services um, that, you know, people will need to, for example, only be able to do their pet licenses online. Um, a big one for everyone, of course, is uh, garbage pickup. Mm-hmm. And that is different depending on where you live in the city, uh, because certain areas of the city are covered um, by an external contractor and it will continue. And other parts of the city, the lower city, Dundas, Flamborough and Ancaster north of the Highway 403, they are provided by city staff, so they will not have garbage pickup. Blue bin for everyone is is done by an external contractor, so recycling will still happen, but garbage. So we're working on, should we need it? 
for those areas, uh, depots where individuals will be able to drop off their garbage in those affected areas. And as soon as we we know we need those and we've got them in place, we'll get information out to the public. Obviously, everybody her- hopes that this will all be resolved over the course of the weekend and none of this has to has to happen. But are there plans in place if this goes stay for a week or two weeks or three weeks? Yeah. So what I can say is, you know, I I, I think no one wants this to happen for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we put in place is if you think about like when we had the pandemic, there's an operations team that will be dealing with issues on a daily basis where we may need to redeploy staff because we really are going to focus on where there's health and safety issues um, that um, we address those. and. Um, They'll happen on a daily basis and we'll we'll prioritize things as we go. And uh, we'll just keep continuing to do that uh, with a hope that if, if it happens, it is for a very short period of time. Any message to the citizens, Jeanette? What should citizens do if this does happen? Um, my big message for the for the citizens and the residents of Hamilton is really take the time to go on our website and look at those things that could be impacted and just understand the ones that relate to them, uh, especially if you have a child that goes to our directly operated child care center or the parks and rec programs so that you've got a contingency plans in place. My hope is you don't need to use them, but I want everyone to be fully aware. Uh, Jeanette Smith with us, city manager for the city of Hamilton, talking about a looming strike could happen on Monday, hoping that negotiations continue over the weekend and we don't get there. But the plans are in place in case they are. And check out the city website if you want more information. Jeanette, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We have been hammering away at housing, trying to get some more attention drawn to this. Um, and, and, you know, too bad we weren't able to do this 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago when this slowdown first started. Uh, the Canadian Home Builders Association said in a recent report that high construction costs, rising interest rates are hurting developer confidence in the market and that two out of three tell bil- uh, builders tell the CHBA that they're building fewer units, 22% have fully canceled projects in recent months. How can this be when there is an ongoing demand and short supply? Let's bring in Mike Collins, Williams, CEO, West End Home Builders Association, and with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon, Scott. Thanks for having me. Doing fantastic. So- Friday if we, I know, I hear you, I hear you. So, I, you know, um, people might have a hard time. I know I am understanding why developers would be putting pauses on projects or canceling them if there is such a high demand, even with rising costs. Would it not lend you to believe people are paying those costs? We're really in a perfect storm right now in terms of uh, what's happening out there in the marketplace. Uh, obviously, there's huge demand for housing with the surge in population growth. Um, you know, our entire region is actually the fastest growing region in North America. Um, but the costs of actually delivering new housing have exceeded the ability uh, for people to pay. And it's it's not just a matter of waving a magic wand and, and reducing those costs. Um, material costs in terms of what's going into new housing, steel, lumber, bricks, et cetera, have, have skyrocketed 
uh, over the last number of years, well beyond the broader rate of inflation. Um, the cost of building homes, be it townhomes, singles, towers in uh, 11 major ca Canadian cities, uh, a study just completed last month was uh, up 54% um, in 2023 compared to the beginning of 2019, just before the pandemic. And of course, labor costs have increased significantly. So, you know, at the end of the day, when we want to deliver more homes um, to make sense be economically viable and for better or worse, our members, home builders cannot deliver um, housing that is affordable that, you know, we can afford to build ourselves. What can, uh, what can be done to speed this up? What can be done to fix this? There's no silver bullet. There's, there's a lot of issues out there. I mentioned the hard construction costs. Um, you know, lumber is starting to come down uh, in terms of costs. So there, there are some good signs there. Um, labor costs are up significantly. We, we have a lack of skilled trades. Um, some of the immigration program into Canada is trying to prioritize more skilled trades. And I think governments in Ontario are doing a decent job in terms of encouraging uh, more students, uh, more apprenticeships in the skilled trades, but that that doesn't happen overnight. About 20% of our construction labor force is actually expected to retire over the next decade, um, and we've got existing labor shortages. And then the big one, which um, we don't have a lot of control over, is is the Bank of Canada. Um, you know, for all those listening out there that have existing mortgages that might be renewing in the next couple years, or uh, those in the market looking for a new mortgage. Um, there's a lot of pressure on consumers and home buyers out there. Well, guess what? For, for the builders and developers out there that are actually building homes or, or building a condo tower or a rental building, um, they also have the same high interest rates, high financing costs. Mm. And when you're building a two or three hundred million dollar project, being faced with a seven or eight percent interest rate versus a two or three percent interest rate on a project that may take four or five, six years to complete. That is an absolutely massive increased cost burden and increased risk to the project. Is there a short-term way out of this? Uh, not the housing shortage, obviously. It takes time to build houses. But can you uh, do you see any time when all of a sudden this trend changes? Because if they're not building any now, what are they going to build more six months from now, a year from now? Well, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of the challenge. We need to actually double housing production here in Hamilton and across Ontario, we need to build about 1.5 million homes over the next decade across Ontario just to keep up with population growth. And if you look back at the last few decades, the highest number we've ever hit is about 750,000 over the course of a decade. So hmm. we're experiencing a slowdown in construction at the very moment that we need to be ramping up and doubling. And it's going to take industry working together with municipal governments the provincial government, the federal government to treat this like the crisis it is. And there are certain levers that governments have control over and others they don't. You know, government can't control the cost of, of lumber or concrete, but governments can assist with faster approvals processes and frankly, to reduce taxation on housing. In most cities in Ontario, when you buy a new home or a new condo, about 25, 30% cost is taxes. We treat new housing in the province of Ontario like a syntax, like you're buying cigarettes for booze. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's nuts. 
Uh, we did see this coming, Mike. We all know it's a self-inflicted wound. Have we learned anything from this? I I hope so. Um, but we we need to be working together to to resolve the problem. And we still have different levels of government abdicating responsibility or or pointing at other levels of government, saying it's their responsibility, um, and not necessarily working together. So uh, my hope is that we together and 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 solve some of the issues that governments do have control over and you know there's a responsibility on the industry side too to try to ramp up um, to try to find um, more innovative ways um, in terms of research and development and finding efficiencies in building processes and looking to other jurisdictions in terms of what uh, what they're doing so it's going to take an all-hands-on-deck approach Mike Collins-Williams with us, CEO of the West End Home Builders Association, talking about the ongoing housing crisis. Mike, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. Uh, the Canadian Minister of the Environment and Climate Change, this is the, anyway, is heading to China later this month in an effort to convince the Chinese Communist Party to change its ways and the way it handles climate change. So here we have a country, China, that builds the equivalent of two coal mines a week is going to take lessons from a country that uh, is shutting down its gas industry and won't help the rest of the world get off coal. I don't know. The two Michaels, uh, election interference, all this other stuff comes to mind. Uh, how, how do you, how do you, how do you, discuss this without saying it is nothing more than distraction. Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the Macdonald laurie Institute. Charles, what are your thoughts on, on the fact that the Environment Minister is going to go over to China and teach them a thing or two? Well, you know, it's actually worse than that because there is an association called the China Council for International Cooperation on Environment and Development which is your absolute classic front organization for the Chinese Ministry of State Security, the 11th Bureau in this case. Um, so it's associated with it, we understand. And our minister, Mr. Gilbo, is not only meeting with those people, but it turns out that he's accepted a position as the executive vice chairperson of this association, which is designed to you know, engage in influence operations with senior government officials and even to solicit funding from foreign governments uh, with a view to talking about China's intentions with regard to climate change and the environment, which the Chinese leader has made clear is we're not going to pay any attention to what foreigners say. We will decide on our own. They're going to increase their their emissions at least until 2030, they say, and we should see some action on them by about 2060. Well, you know, judging by how reliable China is in international commitments, that seems a bit rich. And the idea that our minister has got himself tangled into what is really a, a trap for naive foreigners uh, to 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 try and uh, and get them to agree to to Chinese agendas uh, is pretty pretty serious. You know, it just, in fact, uh, unbelievable for, to me that this could be allowed to happen. Is this a trap or a distraction? Well, you know, I think that, that the idea is to get him to feel that, you know, he has influence over the Chinese, 
But that the Chinese government doesn't want Canada to be unfriendly to China if they expect China to cooperate with uh, Mr. Gilbo on climate. So, you know, the implication will be don't do the public inquiry into the election interference. Don't do the foreign agents registry. Uh, don't make any Indo-Pacific strategy that would constrain China's expansion around the world and particularly in the region supporting their friends, the the North Koreans and their illegal um, military bases in the South China Sea. So, you know, I can just, I've seen this movie before. And the fact that, that nobody has, you know, told Mr. Gilbo that this is just not the way the Chinese are telling you and telling him not to associate himself with uh, United Front Work Department of the Chinese Communist Party associated institution that's headed by people who have associations with influence operations, you know, it just, it just, it just boggles my mind. I mean, he himself said, oh yes, there could be criticism, but you know, clearly <laughs> Mr. Gilbo and possibly the government are just not getting it. Um, we all know Charles, even enemies, it's always good to talk. It's always good to keep the lines of communication open, but what's the purpose of him going? What can he possibly bring to this table that they will accept? Is he going to sell them Canadian liquid natural gas? I don't. Well, I mean, you know, I think they'd buy it <laughs> if we could ship it to, to Tidewater in BC. But, uh, you know, I don't, I, I really think that this is about Chinese government manipulation and his feeling, as you say, that, you know, you go there and you, you, get to know them and develop a relationship and they'll see reason and will get into compliance with norms of, of reducing emissions for climate change. But, you know, we have absolutely no evidence that the Chinese government's doing that. And previous commitments that they've made to try and reduce their emissions have been belied by the fact, as you said in your introduction, that they're building new coal-fired electrical plants every week and and exporting them to to countries abroad where they engage in their Belt and Road um, Development Initiative. So uh, why then are we sending a minister there when we're debating whether to hold a public inquiry into election interference from the Chinese Communist Party? Yeah, that's exactly the question. How is it that the Prime Minister's office has agreed to allow Mr. Gilbo permission to travel there? You know, why isn't why did no one say this is going against our policy towards China at this time, which is to counter their influence operations in Canada and to do a public inquiry and to have a foreign agents registry so that we can um, have Canadians who are receiving benefits from the Chinese state have to declare that publicly. And we need an Indo-Pacific strategy that recognizes what China's doing and cooperate with our allies to try and counter it. So, you know, it, this this is just sending out a terrible signal to the Chinese embassy that Canada is willing to play the game according to Chinese rules. And I dare say that they'll, they'll be feeling considerable relief that Mr. Gilbo is gone because they will try and convince him to tell the folks back in Ottawa that it's more important to cooperate with China on climate change than to deal with China's security threat uh, to our so security and sovereignty inside Canada. It, appear, it appears the feds don't uh, appear to learn anything from this, but instead double down. I mean, instead of even just leaving it, they double down. Yeah, I mean, it is a concern. And, you know, we did have uh, the recent uh, press conference from Elizabeth May, who 
you know, accepted the yeah. government's offer as a party leader to be fully cleared to read the classified information underlying the, you know, now discredited Johnston report. And she has said that, you know, they gave her the security clearance, but she couldn't really see the stuff to make a proper determination of what's actually going on. All for nothing. Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonnell Laurier Institute. Our environment environment minister is heading to China uh, to chat with them about climate change. Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Take care. You too. Scott Radley joining us now, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, it's Friday, Scott. We are well. Uh, so I got three things. You tell me which one you want to talk about. Uh, Sophia Trudeau soaking in the seaweed hot tub in British Columbia while the rest of the province burns. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the environment minister going to China, try to explain to them uh, climate change? Or do you want to talk about, this is brand new, you might even know, know about this, but C-18 stopping uh, Meta from, uh, well, you pay for this content that you steal. No, no, they don't steal. Other people post it on their site. And you pay for that or 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 else. And they say, okay, or else, and we're not going to use your services. We're not going to cover them anymore. Now the Canadian government demanded Friday, today, that Meta lift its reckless ban on domestic news from its platforms to allow people to share information about wildfires. So first they set up a thing saying you have to pay. Then they say, no, we don't want to pay. And then they say, you have to buy this and you have to pay. I mean, where the hell is this government's head? They are out of touch by the minute. These are the kinds of these, like the C-18, it's one of those situations, Scott, where things can sound really good in your head when you're thinking them. You ever have this where you're lying in bed and you come up with a really great plan? You go, this will yes, be great. But then I, yes, but then I do something, Scott, called critical thinking, That's which I right. try to teach my kids. Well, then you wake up and you start thinking about it really. Like, okay, what could go wrong with this? Because here's my brilliant plan. If I do this, I'll make a million dollars. And then you wake up and you go, wait a second. There's a reason everybody hasn't done this. Because, because robbing a bank is illegal. Yeah, but whatever. It, so th these are the kinds of decisions that you think, oh, this is a great plan. This is, this can only work. It could only work. What could possibly go wrong? And here we are with, you know, so many different news organizations. I mean, I've gone on Facebook in the last few days to look and they basically, their Facebook page is empty because they're not allowed to post anything. And so, yeah, it, it's, it is now you've got the government trying to figure out how do we possibly do this while saving face that the wildfires. I mean, sure. We want to have information. We do have, you know, you can post a tweet that says, Hey, wildfire coming, get out. But if this is about, I, I, I don't go to social media. I don't go to Facebook for my evacuation notices. Uh, no, 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 no. I mean, look, you, you would like to believe that you are, regardless of who you are or where you are, if you see plumes of smoke in the sky, you go, what's that? Or if your <laughs> yeah. neighbors are all packing up and leaving, like all of them, you would say, what's going on? Or that someone would come, if you're a senior, let's say, and you don't go on social media or someone would say, Hey, uh, Margaret, um, you got to get out. The, the, the city has said you've got to leave or there's fires coming. This is the federal government looking for a crack in the door to be able to try and nudge it back open to save face. There is no way this government is going to or can without looking like they have completely lost 
and completely been embarrassed and humiliated, they can't say, oh, okay, we take everything back. So they're trying to find a way to make this thing somehow get back without saying we made a mistake. And the problem is, unlike what they apparently thought once upon a time, they have no leverage in this. They are, I think the federal government truly believed that it held all the cards and was the heavy kid on the seesaw who wouldn't let the other kid down until they decided to. And they discovered, uh, uh, the other kid on the other side is fat Albert. You, they hold all the weight in this thing. And this is what the federal government is just discovering. And now they don't know how to get out of it. And it's, it's killing, it's, it's, it's not helping the media. It's hurting the media. Of course it is. Of course it is. And, and you know, Scott, here's the other thing. So many people, and I hear this all the time. You hear this all the time. We know this, all the mainstream media, the mainstream, and that's fine. You want to be saying the mainstream media is terrible. That's fine. Everyone's allowed their opinion and can have their point of view. But the people who are most hurt by this are not the mainstream media. It's the startups and the independents and the people who have no platform other than places like Facebook or Instagram or social media. So it's not the big media corporations. They're being hurt too. I'm not denying that, but they are essentially crushing the startups that people like to say, well, I go to them because they're independent and they, they're the ones who are most getting squished out of this. All right. You want to comment on the seaweed? Seaweed hot tub, BC. So did, did she, did they post something about this? I yes. This. Uh, they're, they were demanding for privacy because of yes, the separation, of but they're posting family photos and there's a photo of Sophia Trudeau sitting in some sort of seaweed, uh, and the family posted this path. Well, she did on social media in, uh, Tofino as people are getting evacuated. I am, she's sitting, she's sitting in a seaweed tub at some native spa. I, I clearly have a different interpretation or translation of privacy than they do because both of them put out that Instagram post saying, please give our family privacy, yeah. leave our, leave our kids. He said, leave our kids out of this and then promptly post photos of him with his kids. It, it like, I have no intention, Scott, I have no intention. And I know you don't either nope. of going after Trudeau's kids. But once he says, we want privacy, leave our kids out. And he then drags his kids in. Okay. I believe that the, that the public has almost a right then to go after the kids. I would never do it. I would never do it. But if you are going to drag your kids into this public dispute, you're the one who's brought them in. You're the one who's brought them in, not us. She's seen, she's seen bathing in sustainably harvested seaweed, seaweed in an outdoor tub at Moon Jelly Bathhouse situated in Canada's first recognized tribal park. Wow. So she's not our first lady. She's our first sushi. <laughs> you know, they don't really show the background, maybe because you can't see the mountains for smoke. All right. Scott Radley coming up next. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. Have a good weekend and enjoyed your seaweed wrap this weekend. Thank you. I will try. Yes. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. I'd just like to express my sympathies to all the Tiger Cats fans this weekend. As someone who comes from a family that has rooted for the Toronto Maple Leafs for a long time, I feel your pain. 